In the late 1970s, Holocaust survivor, author, professor, and Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel wrote a play called The Trial of God as it was held on February 25, 1649 in Shamgorod. In the introduction, theologian, Christian theologian Robert McAfee Brown related a story about Wiesel at Auschwitz. One night, the teacher of Talmud took Wiesel back to his own barracks, and there with the young boy as the only witness, three great Jewish scholars, masters of Talmud, Halakha, and Jewish jurisprudence, put God on trial, creating in that eerie place a rabbinic court of law to indict the Almighty. The trial lasted several nights. Witnesses were heard, evidence was gathered, Conclusions were drawn, all of which issued finally in a unanimous verdict. The Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, was found guilty of crimes against creation and humankind. And then after what Wiesel describes as an infinity of silence, the Talmudic scholar looked at the sky and said, it's time for evening prayers. And the members of the tribunal recited the evening service. This sort of approach to God can make Christians deeply, deeply uncomfortable. After all, if I say, God is good, you say, All the time. Thank you. All the time. All the time. And all the time, God is really good. Good. Isn't it unfaithful to approach God in a confrontational way? To put God on trial? Isn't God our judge and not the other way around? Well, yes. But what Wiesel and other post-Holocaust writers rediscovered was the holy biblical language of lament, of crying out in sadness, anger, even accusation to God in response to trauma. This lament, far from being unfaithful, shows profound faithfulness. It shows engagement and relationship with the God of Israel, even when God doesn't seem to be listening. This kind of crying out goes back very far in the history of God's people. Much of the Bible, in fact, could be summed up in one question. Why? It's a struggling with that question. Why? Habakkuk is no exception. Why is God silent in the face of profound injustice? Violence raged in the little nation state of Judah at the time Habakkuk was written, about 600 B.C. The last righteous king, Josiah, had died in battle. The wealthy were oppressing the poor. Same old story. After a century of subjugation by the Assyrian Empire, now the threat is coming from another corner, from Babylon. Habakkuk begins with these memorable verses. After so much violence, so much trauma, he cries out to God, How long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry violence and you will not save? There is a remarkable thinness separating Habakkuk's time from our own. Habakkuk's cry rings out today. 
from the families of those murdered at a Virginia Walmart, from the loved ones of those killed at a Colorado Springs LGBTQ nightclub, from the parents of three dead University of Virginia football players and 19 dead elementary students in Uvalde, Texas. It rings out from the mothers and spouses and children of Ukrainian and Russian men sent to kill each other in Putin's brutal, illegal, genocidal war. It rings out every time my daughter and her class have to endure the trauma of active shooter drills. And I know that this is supposed to be the beginning of the happiest time of year, and that this is probably the last thing you want me to be talking about up here today. But this is the world that we live in. This is the world where we are constantly crying out, How long, O Lord? With the prophet, we join our voices. And God's response to the prophet and to us is this. Wait. Wait for the vision. It will be made plain. So plain that one driving on I-94 at a high rate of speed can read it as they go past, like a billboard. For now, this is enough. This is enough to know, and we can see this from our history. The arrogant do not endure. And those who are in right relationship with God and with their neighbors live by their faithfulness. Now, being the good Lutherans that we are, we might immediately think of what Luther, following Paul, says. God saves us by grace through faith for Christ's sake. But faith for Luther, Paul, and Habakkuk was not a mere intellectual assent to a set of doctrines, not just something I say I believe in at confirmation, nor is it about an, a fundamentalist extremism that seeks to impose one's will on other people. That isn't faith. Although those kinds of unfaith, either apathy or control, can be constant temptations. Rather, the kind of faith Habakkuk is talking about is better translated as steadfastness or fidelity. In dim times when it seems like the world hangs by a thread, those in right relationship with God and their neighbors live by their fidelity. They live by their steadfastness, by their sturdiness, by their resilience. That is a faith that can endure hard times. Times that Habakkuk describes in chapter 3. When the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines. When the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food. That kind of faith is God-given. That kind of faith endures. Think of Jesus. We get the beginning of this story of him in Gethsemane today, which is an odd text to choose for the beginning of Advent, but it makes sense. Jesus, when he's facing certain betrayal and death, Jesus displays this kind of fidelity, this kind of steadfastness, this resilience, this sturdiness, not only to his Father, but to us as well. And because just because Jesus accepts this destiny, remember, doesn't mean he accepts it stoically. 
At Gethsemane, what does he say? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, yours be done. Jesus is faithful, and yet he makes his thoughts known to God. In that act of faithfulness, Jesus lays down his life willingly for us. In God the Son, in Jesus Christ, we see how strange God's justice is. God takes the wrath of the world, the cruelty of inhumanity, the cruelty of humanity, the injustice of religion and government, and takes it on himself, all on himself. In the cross is God's judgment of the world. Yet that judgment is forgiveness. God carries the sin of the world. And this Jesus, God the Son, really does die. He really is buried. And he really is raised again. God revealed at that moment the destiny of humanity. Not injustice, not violence, but shalom. Peace, wellness, wholeness, well-being. Of course, we still live in an in-between time. Though sin, death, and the devil have been defeated, they still seem to act with so much impunity. It's like the rage of a caged animal, an animal that knows its death is near. How do we live in such a world? The Spirit has given us the power to live faithfully, to live resolutely, to live firmly. We live with loyalty to God and to God's dream of shalom for the universe. This loyalty may mean a lot of hard words with God sometimes. Prayer is not always sweetness and light. Sometimes it can resemble a knockdown argument or begging through tears. We may implore, plead, and petition God for God's kingdom to come at last on earth as in heaven, as Jesus tells us to pray. We may pray angrily. We may pray in lament. We may even be accusatory towards God at times. However, we always pray. Our lives are prayer. When we pray, we are being faithful. When we pray, we're learning how to live, how to respond, how to be in relationship with God and each other. This Advent, as we look back to the coming of Christ once in a world that was just as dim, if not dimmer, than ours, and to his coming again at the end of time. We remember that the Spirit gives us the power to be faithful, because God is faithful to us. God is faithful to us, even when everything is falling apart. God is faithful to us. We're empowered to live by that faith. Thanks be to God. Amen.